Let's continue in prayer. Father, we come before you by the blood of Christ, knowing that we cannot merit your favor on our own, that we are broken, that we are sinful. The sins of last night, the sins of this morning, the sins of last week, they ring in our minds, and it's so easy to feel shame. It's so easy to feel broken. It's so easy to feel like we don't even deserve to be here. And so, Lord, we come here battling ourselves. But then others of us, and many of us in this room, we come here battling other factors as well, being told by society that we're one thing when we know, according to you, we're another. Each of us is carrying a weight that we were not meant to carry. And God, I just pray that today, as we talk about justice and what your vision is for it, and as we lament together, that you would remind us that we are loved, that we are cared for, that you cherish us. Lord Jesus, we know that you lived, you died, and you rose to make us right with God, with yourself. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Like Stephen said, my name is Raleigh Sadler. I'm the executive director and founder of a nonprofit called Let My People Go. Um, Let My People Go really exists to empower the local church to fight human trafficking, this big mega issue, by loving those who are most vulnerable to it. Because traffickers will consistently target those who have their backs against the wall, those who are in the margins, those who actually don't really have any solid options. And so... When you hear statistics like there are more than 40 million people around the world who are held in what amounts to modern-day slavery, it can be staggering. When you hear that there are between 14,500 and 17,500 foreign nationals who are trafficked into the U.S., it kind of challenges that thought because a lot of us, we start thinking, well, we know that human trafficking happens, but it happens over there. It doesn't happen here. But the data disagrees. Whether people are being trafficked for sex, labor, or domestic servitude, people are being exploited. Their vulnerabilities are being taken advantage of. Human trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerability for commercial gain. So ultimately, it can happen anywhere because there are vulnerable people everywhere. And so as we come to church, And as we walk through the community to come to church, we have to start opening our eyes. Who are those most vulnerable? Is it the single mom or single dad who's just trying to make it, trying to make it work? Is it the person who is a new immigrant to the community? Is it the kid in foster care? Is it the person who's been treated differently because of their race or their ethnicity? Who is most vulnerable in our community? Who's most vulnerable in our church? And I think this is key because oftentimes we can operate from the standpoint of blindness. Like we, we just assume everyone has the same amount of privilege. We all have the same things going for us. And, and when we assume this, we can be wrong. So ultimately, Let My People Go works with the local church to train them to identify and respond to vulnerability. 
Because when you do that, you are fighting human trafficking. Because every person who is vulnerable could be trafficked, they may be trafficked, or they have been trafficked. I've had interns who have been talking to those who are homeless in Manhattan, and as they're talking to them, they're like, the person's like, what do you do? And they're like, oh, I work with this nonprofit, and we fight human trafficking, and this is how we do it. More often than not, that person says, that's human trafficking? And you're like, yeah. And you're like, oh, huh. What do you mean, oh, huh? What's, what's going on? That happened to me. We don't know what has happened to the people that we know well, much less the people that we cross by on a street on a daily basis. And so I believe when the church begins looking actively for vulnerable populations and seeing them as people to be loved rather than like a problem to be solved, when you really see the humanity in your neighbor, you're going to experience God like you've never experienced him before in your life. I can promise you this. because you'll be experiencing a just God. Today we're talking about justice. And ultimately justice is giving people what they are due, whether that's punishment or care. It's giving someone what they deserve, treating them with equity. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian and author, he says it this way, God loves and defends those with the least social power and so should we that's what it means to do justice see a lot of times we think about justice in only a political sphere but it's ultimately a care for others it's leveraging our power because whether we know it or not we all have power of some degree it's leveraging our power on behalf of those who are being exploited, on behalf of those who are being taken advantage of. One example comes to mind. I was in Bryant Park. Any ever, anyone ever go to Bryant Park just to kind of sit, sit at a rickety table and just kind of just rest for a minute? I sat at one of those tables. I was meeting my friend Joy, Joy Adamore. She started an organization called Beauty for Ashes where she worked with those in the commercial sex industry. And as we're really kind of getting into it, you know, that moment when you're about to cross the threshold and actually have a solid conversation, this man walks up. He has a cane. Excuse me, excuse me. I don't want to bother you. Um, this is awkward. I don't really want to bother you. I know this is a bother, though. I don't want to really, I really don't want to bother you, though. But um, uh, I'm like, okay. And he goes, you have some money? And literally, like, nothing. And I'm like, man, I, I have nothing. And he goes, okay, okay, I, again, I'm sorry. And he starts walking off. Something hit me. I don't know what it was, but it was just this moment. I just had to ask him his name. I said, excuse me, sir, like, what is your name? I'm not kidding. He's like walking. He stops. He turns around, looks me dead in the eye, and he says, are you a Christian? Not the question I was expecting. Are you a Christian? And I said, I mean, yes, I actually am. And he goes, because only Christians ask me my name. He said, I don't have much. 
but I have a story. Do you mind if I share it? We were like, yeah, sit down. So Rick sits down with Joy and I, and he starts to tell us how he was a contract worker on a construction site and how he was really good, but he had an issue. He was a functional addict, you know? He would do heroin in the morning, he would go to work, he would come home, he would do some more heroin. And he could get things done, but today was different because he went to work, but then he woke up somewhere that wasn't home. He woke up in a New York emergency room with an emergency room physician looking him in the eyes and saying, do you believe in God? New York, do you believe in God? And he says, no. And he goes, you need to. Because you were using a nail gun today. You slipped and a nail was embedded into your, your brain. You should not even be understanding the words that I am saying. This is shocking me. I don't, I don't know who's looking out for you, but someone is. So they removed the nail. They patched him up. He left and immediately went to church. He became a believer. And after he finished the story, he, he repeated something he said earlier. He said, I don't have much, but I do have a story. And I want to tell it to as many people as possible so that they can be helped. In a similar way, this is why David shares his story in Psalm 41. We're going to be reading Psalm 41 today. And this psalm, it's important for us because what I love about it, it's the final psalm at the end of the first book of Psalms. There are five books of Psalms. So this is kind of the crescendo. This is David bringing out the gusto. He's bringing out the good stuff. And he's looking back over his life in this psalm. And he sees how God has blessed him as he cared for the poor. But he also sees his own poverty and how God met him in the middle of it. And this psalm is actually a great example of a lament. And I know that you guys have been processing what lament is and what lament is scripturally. And this is something great to add to kind of your arsenal for understanding lament. But it's interesting because like Rick, David is sharing. And he's being very vulnerable so that others can know that God promises to bless vulnerable people like you and I as we bless other vulnerable people. I don't know about you all, but it's, it's almost getting ridiculous. Every time I open my laptop, turn on my phone, um, like I ever turn my phone off, let's be real, or turn on the news, I'm just flooded with headlines. Nothing is positive. Everything is falling apart. Everyone is broken. And I don't know about you, but it, you just start feeling overwhelmed because you're hearing about human trafficking more and more and more. And this is a good thing, but it's also heartbreaking. You're hearing about the racial divide in the United States more and more. And in you're seeing people in positions of power say things that just show us that we still have a long way to go. 
We have a refugee crisis, a border crisis. We, we have over 60,000 people in the New York City shelter system. We have over 5,000 people who are homeless on the street because they can't get into a shelter or they don't feel safe in a shelter. We can't outrun vulnerability. It's staring us in the face. And so rather than rushing into action, because that's something we all want to do, right? Like we hear about an issue and we want to solve it. We see the movie Taken. We want to kick down a door. We want to rescue people. We want to fix something. That's not what God is calling us to do in this moment and in this psalm. He's saying rather than rushing into action, stop. Before you start, stop. Cry out to me. David is laying out a paradigm for lament here. As we look at this psalm, we're going to see that as we are called to justice, we can call for justice because there is justice for the called. As we are called to justice, we can call for justice because there is justice for the called. The first thing we notice in the psalm is a call to justice. Every one of us, regardless of our vocation, are called to it. And in these first three verses, David reminds us that we're considered blessed as we care for those who are in poverty around us, those who lack options, those who are in need of love. What's interesting to me is that we can actually experience joy. I love how the CSB kind of says this, the word is happy instead of blessed. Other translations will say blessed. It says happy. We can experience joy knowing that as we care for those who are underserved or in a tough spot, as we care for them, we're actually very near to the heart of God. For example, when you read throughout the Old Testament, you find God, the Father, identifying with a select group of people. He identifies with the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, those who would be destitute without God. But what I love is God doesn't only identify with them. He says, you were sojourners once, now love the sojourner. He grounds the people of Israel's love of the sojourner in their own redemption. He's saying, see what I've done for you. Now I want you to join me. So God identifies with vulnerable people and he challenges his people to join him. Same thing in Matthew 25. We have Jesus. He's talking about what's going to happen in the end times when he comes to judge. And he's, gonna, he's saying ultimately that our faith is going to work itself out. And he's going to look at those on his left and those on his right. And he's going to say, what you did for the least of these, you did for me. Well, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? What you did for the least of these, you did for me. Again, God is identifying with those most vulnerable and challenging his people to join him. Henry Blackaby, he's the author of a book called Experiencing God. And what I glean from this book, one of the most powerful lessons in this book, is he tells us how to find God's will. 
says, if you want to find God's will, find where God is at work and join him there. But I think if you want to find where God is at work, you need to find those who are most vulnerable. God is not waiting for you, in a sense, well, ultimately, some of us, we're at this point where we're like, hmm, we're at this point where Our version of God in a lot of our minds is not this God who loves justice. But when we, when we see God working through scripture, because oftentimes we preach, I, a lot of churches, they preach this justiceless God from the pulpit. And I'm, I'm looking at the whole of scripture and I'm seeing that God is saying, I'm already with the vulnerable. Where are you? He's inviting us to join him. We don't have to bring God to those most vulnerable. He's already there. So who's most vulnerable in your community? Who comes to mind? I loved how you began the service and how you prayed for one another. Because every one of us has different vulnerabilities. And they change over time, some of them. And I love that you were focused on that. Someone once asked Mother Teresa, they said, how did you impact global poverty? Like, how did you do that? And she looked at the person and she said, you start with the thing that's in front of you. What is that need that is right in front of you? She quoted Matthew 25 and she said that she looked for the face of Jesus in the faces of the poor. And so David reminds us that this is a call for all of us in the first verse. He says, happy or blessed. Happy is the one who is considerate. This word is not meaning just mental assent, but it's actual practical and physical help. Getting your hands dirty in the lives of those who are poor. And those who are poor are those who are not only materially, materially poor, but those who lack social influence those who lack status, those who can be easily exploited, those who do not have the protection of a family that looks out for them. Then he continues, the Lord will save him in the day of adversity. The Lord will keep him and preserve him. He will be blessed in the land. You will not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed. You will heal him on the bed where he lies. What David is saying here is counterintuitive to everything we know by experience. Naturally, we feel that we can only be safe and that we can only survive if we protect ourselves and our families from anything that would threaten them. And so often, this leads us to isolating ourselves from the people that God has called us to serve. Because we don't want that. We don't need that. But what David is saying here is that your protection, it doesn't fall on you. It's not all your job to protect yourself. We have to trust that God will protect us. Because of God's grace, you are free from this incessant need to always worry about protecting yourself. And you are set free to protect others. As we turn the focus from ourselves, we'll be able to focus on the needs of others. Rick left, and Joy and I finally got to get into our conversation. And now we're pumped. We're excited. We just had a great conversation with Rick, and now I'm hearing her story. 
And Joy actually chronicled her story in a book called Broken by Beauty. And she began to tell me how when her parents got saved, when they became Christians, they became radical believers. They moved into London's red light district and began doing life with those who were sex traffickers, pimps, those who were sex buyers, and those who were prostituted. They would invite these people into their home. They would have dinner together. Mom, dad, two daughters. And they would just do life and have community. And one person that Joy didn't really like was a young woman named Val. Because every time Val came, something went missing. Every time. So Joy heard from her mom that Val was coming over. So Val comes over. And they have lunch, and they have a great conversation. But then Joy, who I believe was 16 at the time, starts looking for her phone. Her phone. Val had just left, and she's looking for her phone, and she's like, where is my phone? Mom, where's my phone? Guys, where's my phone? And then she realizes Val took it. So she leaves the house, storms over to the neighborhood brothel, bangs on the door. The trafficker named Tom answers the door, He's like, what are you doing here? She's like, where's my phone? He's like, Val, Val took it, but it's gone now. And you're not going to get anything out of her because, because she's high. Oftentimes, traffickers will ply people with drugs to keep them vulnerable and to keep them doing things that they probably wouldn't want to do in the first place. So Joy goes into the room. She lifts Val up kind of like she's a sack of potatoes, right? lifts her up and just Val's kind of drooling a little bit at this moment and she's just like well I don't have your phone I don't have your phone and she's like well Ugh. so she leaves and she would say that she was not only mad at losing her phone but she was also broken over the fact that this was Val's existence. This was her life. And after she told me this story, I stop and I'm like, where were your parents? And she stops, points right in my face and says, unless you trust God to protect you, you can never do what he's calling you to do. Ever. And it shook me because this is what blessing looks like in real time. It's this protection. It's that deliverance on the day of trouble when you're working with somebody and you're caring for somebody and things are starting to go south. Things are getting weird. You know something's about to happen and suddenly God opens the door and you walk away. There are other times when you're in the middle of it and everything around you is going crazy. It's this picture of God protecting you and keeping you alive. This picture of of Israel having armies on all sides, but God keeping them. But then sometimes you're going to be serving people and you will be hurt. You will, you will be impacted. I lived in Louisville, Kentucky in a um, town called Smoketown. And 
I'll never forget, there were a lot of churches that were like really just serving our community. But bad things happened. One pastor told me once, he was like, yeah, I got beat up by 10 guys. They jumped me. The only way I was able to get out of it was to use a knife and like injure one of them and they, they let, me, let, let me go. And it was just like, it's so easy to want to serve people when there's no cost, but there is a cost to loving your neighbor. There just is. And David knows that God will bless him and meet his needs because he already has. In verses 4 through 10, David's talking about a time when he was vulnerable. He begins talking about his enemies, and he starts talking about himself. He talks about his friends and how they don't want him to recover. And he calls for God to be gracious. You see, like David, those who are called to justice are the same people that call for justice. Let's look at verse 4. I said, Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak maliciously about me. When will he die and be forgotten? <coughs> when one of them comes to visit, he speaks deceitfully. He stores up evil in his heart. He goes out and talks. All who hate me whisper together about me. They plan to harm me. Something awful has overwhelmed him, and he won't rise again from where he lies, they say. Even my friend, in whom I trusted, the one who ate my bread, has, ra has raised his heel against me. David is sick. He's bedridden. All of his friends have turned on him. The only reason they come to visit is to get ammunition so that they can go and gossip about him. They want him to fail. They want him to be deposed. They want a new king one that looks like them in his place. In a sense, as David is writing this psalm, he is being ridiculously vulnerable. He is what we would call a wounded healer. This is an idea that a psychiatrist named Carl Jung came up with. And he basically said, the trauma that we've experienced will drive us to care for others who've experienced a similar trauma. We will care more because we will know that they're going through something we went through. There'll be a level of understanding. The Dutch priest, Henry Nouwen, he actually took this idea and he applied it to ministers and he applied it to the church. He said, oftentimes we care because of the wounds that we've experienced. And we want to serve others who've been wounded in the same way. You see, when we, when Let My People Go works with a church, we always have to help that Christian community understand that they have their own wounds. Because if we're not aware of our wounds, when we come across the wounds of someone else, they will be exposed. It's a mirror effect. As we look into the eyes of others who are suffering, our own stuff is going to get stirred up. They're, we're going to get triggered. There are going to be things that come up that show our own vulnerability. The brokenness of others exposes our brokenness. This is a general truth. In the big book for Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a quote that I love. Every morning I wake up and I look my enemy in the eyes and then I shave him. 
as we serve others, we will look into that mirror and we will see our own issues. Our prejudices will come up. Our fears will come up. Our past trauma will come up. We can't do this without community. We need others to track with us. You see, David's vulnerability in a psalm, it's an invitation. Think back to a time where you realized you were vulnerable. That you had a need. A time when you were confronted by your own failure or the failure of those around you. A time where you realized, I actually do have limitations. How did you feel? Did you feel isolated? Did you feel hurt? Did you feel mocked? I feel like as we think about our vulnerability, it is absolutely freakishly horrifying because we're not protected. This is probably why we do everything we can to avoid confronting our own weakness. If you don't believe me, how many people here have heard of a strength finder's inventory? Anybody heard of a strength finder inventory? It's kind of like a personality test, but what it does is, and when I first started in ministry, my mentor said, you know what? Forget about your weaknesses. We need to focus on your strengths. He was speaking in line with almost everybody in current leadership thought at that time. And what he was saying was, if you focus on the couple of things you're good at, just do those and you'll be great. The problem is that leads to a toxicity. And we forget that vulnerabilities are actually a gift. The Apostle Paul was writing his second letter to the church at Corinth. And he's talking about his own weakness. And I love this. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool. Because I would be telling the truth. But I'll spare you. So that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears in me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. He says this twice, so that I would not exalt myself. He understood what was happening. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. My power is perfected in weakness. It's beautiful. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We've read this passage a million times, but when you think about it in the context of your own brokenness and the things that you've experienced, Everyone in this room has experienced some heavy things. And we've all been hit from different directions. It's hard to believe this sometimes. We're like, what was Paul's issue? Like, he, he liked this? But he saw the, the deeper purpose. He saw that God could bring beauty out of ashes. You see, it's in your own messiness that you'll find your ministry. Your own pain can point towards your purpose. Nowen, who wrote The Wounded Healer, he said this in a letter to his friend. He said, there was a time when I really wanted to help the poor, the sick, and the broken, but to do it as someone who is healthy, wealthy, and strong. 
now I see more and more how it is precisely through my weakness and brokenness that I minister to others. You see, just as each of us is called to help those who are hurting, each of us are hurting. So the psalmist is saying that those who are called to justice can cry out for justice because he knows that there is justice for the called. Starting in verse 9. Even my friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. But you, Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. By this I know you delight in me. My enemy does not shout in triumph over me. You supported me because of my integrity, and you set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. You see, David had just said something in a psalm to be sung by his people that was unbelievably difficult to say. But now he's regrouping, he's collecting himself, he's saying, raise me up, uphold me, so that I can bring justice, so that I can punish those who have defied the king. I know you will uphold me because of my integrity. Most commentators say here, that this is specific to how he's caring for the poor. But I think if we look at this carefully, we realize we know that David isn't perfect. We know that he was not exactly a man of integrity. That his integrity had been found wanting, so to speak. You see, David's faith couldn't be in his own performance. He couldn't save himself by doing everything perfectly because he was not perfect. He was made of the same stuff we are. His faith had to be in someone else, another king, another David, another who would be characterized by his love for the poor, one who came to preach good news to the poor, one who would focus on those most vulnerable, those who were outcasts, those who were on the fringe, one who would touch lepers, Lepers, rather. He didn't touch lepers. One who would ultimately care for women, even though that was tricky in that culture. Not only women, he would talk to Samaritan women who were considered enemies, in a sense, of the Jews. He would dine with tax collectors, though they were considered traitors. Christ was righteous in your place. He was fully just in your place. His justness counts for us. But his earthly ministry, it would come to an end. As he's celebrating what would be his last supper with his disciples, he actually quotes Psalm 41. In John chapter 13, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He quotes Psalm 41 so that his disciples and us by extension would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the Messiah, that this psalm finds its fulfillment in him. That like David, he was being betrayed by one of his closest friends, one of the 12, Judas. He was being sold out to the Roman authorities the occupiers. 
But rather than crying out for justice, he experienced justice in the place of sinners. The wrath of God was poured out on the cross for us. So Christ lived to bring us freedom. And he died the death reserved for a Roman slave. He was buried, but he rose up for his church, which is made up of, you guessed it, wounded healers. If you're here today and you are trusting in Christ, believe that he was wounded for you. That's true. That's true of you, regardless of how you feel. Your past, present, and future sins have been dealt with 2,000 years ago. All of your sins were future sins 2,000 years ago. They have been dealt with because of what Christ did. But as wounded healers, we have to remember that we cannot just be motivated by our wounds. We have to be motivated by the fact that the healer was wounded for us. Now we can say along with David that God upholds us, but it's not because of our integrity. It's because of Christ's integrity on our behalf. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God delights in us and will not let our enemy triumph over us because Christ won that victory at the cross. We can know that because of Jesus alone, we are set in God's presence forever. So as we close, like Rick, our story is caught in a greater narrative. Like David, our pain, it actually points to a person, a person who suffered for us. One who doesn't call us by a number, but by name. In this lament, we discover that weakness is the path to our ministry. Because God continues to bless vulnerable people so that they can love other vulnerable people. Remember, as we are called to justice, we can call for justice because there's justice for the call. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We're reminded that justice is rendering those what they are due. And you took our sin on yourself, even though you were innocent. The only innocent human ever born into this world, you became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You took what was due us and took it on yourself to free us to live justly, to free us to love freely, and to point people to the ultimate hope, which is the grace found in your gospel. It's in your name. Amen.
wrap up our service at this time. Uh, if you've got a prayer request, we'll encourage you to jot it down on your communication card. Patrick, would you mind grabbing the offering basket off the table over there? Um, and in just a moment, Patrick's going to collect our offering. Uh, as always, you can give online, I think, yeah, or you can text that number. Uh, I know most of our church gives online or via texting, and, and you're welcome to do that. Or uh, you can drop some cash uh, in the basket, along with your prayer requests, uh, as uh, Patrick passes that uh, along. So, uh, as he's doing that, I have just a couple of announcements uh, for you. Uh, one is that uh, over the next two weeks, we're going to finish this series, Christ and Culture. Next week, I'll be preaching on Christ and beauty. And then the week after that, Christ and sexuality. Uh, so I invite you to uh, be praying uh, and uh, come ready to, uh, to encounter uh, God's word uh, on those issues uh, over the next couple of weeks. On September 8th, uh, in a few weeks, we will be celebrating our fifth anniversary as a church. So we have a a guest worship team uh, that will be leading us in worship uh, that Sunday, give our uh, musicians and uh, singers uh, a break uh, from uh, Claremont. That's not actually the name of the church, but that's what they are sort of called. Uh, it's a Haitian church in downtown Brooklyn. Uh, they're going to be leading us uh, in worship and doing a lot of special things. Also, uh, Christopher Coe, who served with us for a time and then we launched him out. Uh, actually, our church financially supports his food truck ministry, whereby he tries to serve um, the homeless by giving them a quality meal. Uh, he's actually going to park his food truck uh, in front of the theater on September 8th, and he's catering uh, our lunch that day. So uh, most, of, most of the time when we do this, it's a potluck, and we ask you to bring something. Uh, this time, uh, don't worry about that. If maybe, maybe a few of you want to bring desserts and drinks. That's really all we need, uh, because he's providing uh, lunch for us, and we get to see his food truck. Um, you can pray for the permits to be approved for his food truck. He's still dealing with some, some drama with that. Uh, but he will be able to, uh, to come and to serve us regardless of whether he's cleared for, uh, for the general public. Uh, so anyway, mark that on your calendar, September 8th. Very special service. We'll celebrate five years of uh, what God has done uh, here at Rosé. All right? I think there is a jazz soiree that's free uh, at the Brooklyn Children's Museum from 3 to 7 or 4 to 7 uh, this afternoon. So the, the Children's Museum is free today, right? Yes, which it's normally not. So if you want to take your kids to the Kids Museum uh, and enjoy the, uh, the free uh, soiree, I think uh, my family's going to go on uh, later this afternoon. We'd love to see you there. All right, you are dismissed. Love you guys.